Well, we are uh, knee-deep in a series called With and Like Jesus, and uh, in this series, we are talking about uh, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a learner of Jesus. And the way that we understand that, because that's one of those words that gets thrown around uh, in the church and amongst Christians often, a disciple being a disciple who makes disciples. But what, I mean, what do we mean when we, what are we aiming for when we talk about being a disciple? And the way we understand that is we look at the life of Jesus and what he did with his followers, his learners, um, is really three things. It's about being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and then helping others do the same. And so we spent uh, the first two weeks, or the last two weeks, talking about what it means to be with Jesus and the, the absolute critical uh, importance that we have to be with Jesus, around Jesus, before we can be like him. And that he doesn't want you to be like him without being around him. The idea is that his love and his way is caught. As you draw near to him, as you receive his love and grace and mercy, as he says, come and follow me, then you learn. He trains you as he gives that to you, how to then give that to others. But it doesn't stop there. Um, It moves towards being like Jesus. So after we get that basis of the critical foundation of abiding in Christ, remaining in him, then it moves on to, okay, so if, if we're remaining in him, what is rubbing off, so to speak? What is it about Jesus that we are meant to emulate, to mimic, to copy, to follow in his footsteps after? So what does it look like to be like Jesus? Uh, that's what we're looking at today and the next Sunday as well. When, we, when we're around Jesus, what rubs off? And so today, we're looking at the most foundational aspect of, of what that is. That if you miss this, then you've, you've, this first step will put you in the wrong direction. You'll miss the rest of it. If we miss this one step in being like Jesus. So we're going to look at this in uh, three sections this morning. We're going to look at it in... First, what it means to be like Jesus. Second, what prevents us from being like Jesus. And then third, how to be like Jesus. So what, is it, what does it mean to be like Jesus? What prevents us from being like Jesus and how to be like Jesus? All right? So first, what it means to be like Jesus. Um, you may be thinking, how, how is he going to narrow this down into two sermons? I mean, you look at the life of Jesus, there's, so, I mean, there's, you know, just... In new, I mean, there's so many things that we could focus on and look at. When you look at who Christ is uh, and the amazing man that he was, the fact that he was God in the flesh. I mean, there's a lot about Jesus that we can't emulate. I mean, the fact that he was God. He is God. He was, I mean, as, as Christians, we understand God as a trinity. And what that means is that we believe that there is one God and three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Sounds really complicated, and it is in a way. We admit that we can't fully comprehend it, but it's simple to receive in that we understand this God as three persons in community with himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is God the Son become man. He is God with skin on. He is God in flesh. He is the bridge between God and man. He is the image of the invisible God. And in those ways, you cannot mimic Jesus. You weren't meant to. 
But there are uh, many ways. And I think you can kind of put it under two broad categories of what it looks like to be like Jesus. I think everything kind of flows from these two. And it's what we heard read from Matthew 22, where, where Jesus zeroes in on the greatest commands. If you look at uh, the life of Jesus, one of the things that may surprise you that he talks about again and again and again is his father. He's constantly talking about his father, the love that he has for his father, the respect that he has for his father, the fact that he can do nothing apart from his father. You can, and when I read that, I kind of think, well, I mean, he's Jesus. Like, can he just, I mean, he's God in the flesh. He could kind of do whatever he wants. Pretty powerful. I mean, why does this keep talking about his, his dad, his heavenly father? Jesus says in John 14, 31, the reason that he does everything that he does. He says, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. At the center of Jesus is love, respect, affection for his father. So if we want to be like Jesus, that is where it starts. And that's where Jesus directs, uh, directs us in Matthew 22. When he's, uh, he's attempted to be stumped by a religious know-it-all, to trip him up in his words, and he says, "What you know, if you had to boil down all 613 commands of the Old Testament, which is the most important? And Jesus very clearly and plainly and rightly says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He goes on to say, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We're going to look at that second commandment next week of loving your neighbor as yourself. But today, the first and the greatest commandment, loving God, the God of the Bible, with everything that's in you from the inside out, this love is uh, it's a feeling and an action, right? It's not just a feeling, it's not just sentimental, but it's also not just an action where it kind of just in service to a, a king or a ruler. It's both. It's a feeling and an action. It's, uh, Tim Keller, a, a pastor and author, illustrates this, uh, this, this concept that Jesus is zeroing in on the fact that our relationship to God is first one of love, not one necessarily of obedience. Now, you can't separate love and obedience, but it's not first just obey me, do what I say, but it's first one of love. He illustrates it saying this, imagine being in a situation where you were dating somebody and you seem to be falling in love. As part of getting to know one another, you let it be known that when you get married, you were coming into a significant trust fund. The person who you're falling in love with said, oh, really? Well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make any difference whether you're rich or poor because I love you for who you are. Suppose just before the wedding, you learned that you weren't going to be getting that trust fund. And when you relayed that information to your spouse-to-be, he or she got so disappointed that they called off the wedding. How would you feel? What would, what would that tell you about this person's love for you? You would start to say something like, you never loved me, you were using me, you loved me because I was going to get you somewhere or get you something, you did not love me, you were using me. When we put rote obedience above loving God, when we think that's what God wants, that actually ends up creating a relationship in which we're trying to get leverage on God by our 
good deeds, by our good works. The heart of Christianity is not rote obedience. God is not after your, your hands, so to be. He's after your heart. He's after what is at the deepest part of you, what you value above all else. What has captured your imagination above all else. That's what, that's what God is after. And that's, what, that's how Jesus lived his life because Jesus knew the Father better than anyone else and he was captured with him. He was enthralled with him. He loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So don't, just, I mean, if, if, if nothing else from, from this point, don't, don't reduce Christianity down to law-keeping, to rule-keeping. The first and greatest command is to love God with all that's in you so that it affects how you speak. It affects how you live your life. And I think this sheds a little bit of light onto uh, to Jesus in that Jesus was not a little goody-two-shoe rule keeper. Jesus was a strong, fierce, courageous, revolutionary leader who turned the world upside down And what drove him was not keeping the rules and wanting to maintain the status quo. What drove him was the fact that he knew the Father. He knew his greatness. He knew his beauty. He knew his love. And so that captured him and drove him to not be swayed by uh, the crowds, to be tempted to, uh, to give over his life to the enemy when he tempted to give him the world. He knew his Father was... Uh, was unlike anyone else. And so that is what drove Jesus. So if we, the heart of Jesus was his father. So if we want to be like Jesus, that's, that's where we're aiming. That our hearts would be set on the father. Now, this brings us to our, our second section. If the primary way to be like Jesus is to love God, to have affection for him, that is met with action, what prevents us from doing that? What prevents you from doing that? Because you're probably feeling to some degree this morning, even as you drag yourself into church, and you you feel that feeling that we all feel when we walk into a space like this, oh, I've got to put on the smile, I've got to put on the thing that looks like I've got it all together, that I've got to, you know, raise my hands in worship to show that I love God, that he's really, I really, I love God. But you know deep down that that you don't, or not as much as you want to. What causes that? Well, if you want to flip back in your Bible quite a bit to early on in Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, is what Jesus is actually alluding to. He's not just making up that, that command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind. And strength. He is alluding to uh, a central piece of the Old Testament. And here we, we get a clue about uh, more insight into what it looks like to love God, what keeps us from doing it, and then how to do it. So we're going to look, uh, really spend the rest of our time here in Deuteronomy 6 looking at this. But um, briefly, where, where we're at in Deuteronomy 6 is that the people of God had been in slavery for hundreds of years in Egypt. 
God had just delivered them from that. In chapter 5, he gives them the Ten Commandments, and then we get chapter 6. And in chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, it says this. Verse 5 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is seen as a bridge, a linchpin of sorts. The people of God have been chosen, they've been enslaved, they've been delivered. God has then said, because I've delivered you now, live like this. And then you get the, this, this commandment that comes after those Ten Commandments, and it's almost as if this acts as a parenthesis after the Ten Commandments. You get those laws of don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any carved images. Don't covet your, your neighbor's spouse. All, the, you know, all the, the Ten Commandments. And then you get this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, so, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's almost like it's saying, this is what those are really about. It's, it's emphasizing and highlighting what those are about. That it's not just about rote obedience. It's about having affection for God. And because of that, obeying. So beneath obedience is love, is affection for God. But it goes on to uh, address exactly what what we feel when we hear all this. We know we should love God. We know we should love God more than, than you do. And this addresses what's, uh, what prevents it in verse 14 through 15. Because God goes on to say, you know, you're, you're going to be in the wilderness for about four decades, but then I'm going to get you into the promised land. And when you get there, you're going to be tempted to forget me. You're going to get comfortable. And when that happens, you're going to be tempted to go after other gods. So verse 14 and 15 says this, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. So what is God saying? He's saying, I don't want you to have any mistresses. I don't want you to cheat on me with other gods. I, uh, I heard Oprah in an interview one time say that the reason she could not get behind Christianity was because of this passage where God says of himself, I am jealous. And she said, isn't that a bad thing? I mean, isn't this God admitting that he's maybe not as great and amazing as we thought? That he's jealous? And I totally, I, I totally understand where she's coming from and where that thought comes from because when jealousy grows outside of a covenant relationship, a relationship in which you have exclusive rights to the other person, think marriage. I mean, think about a marriage relationship. Would you say that, that a couple had a healthy marriage relationship if the husband didn't mind at all that some other man was flirting with his wife? Or would you call it a healthy marriage, full of love, if a wife didn't care that her husband was sleeping around? No, there's a, there's a jealousy there. 
There's a desire to have that other person just for yourself because you're within the confines of a covenant relationship that allows that kind of love and safety that needs to be protected. And that's exactly what God is saying with his people. He's saying, I have entered into this kind of covenant with you where I have pursued you, I've bought you, I've brought you out of slavery to make you my own. And I want you to love me. I want you to see me for who I am. This is talking about um, idolatry. This is talking about idolatry, having other gods. In this time in ancient Israel, it was unheard of for anyone to say that there was only one God or to only worship one God. There were many gods. There was a God for almost everything that you could think of, right? Fertility, rain, romance, anything. Anything you needed, there was a God who could meet that specific need. And this passage starts out with God saying, the Lord your God is one. He's one. Now, you may be a professed monotheist, somebody who believes in one God. But if you're anything like me, then you are functionally a polytheist. You may ascribe that, oh yeah, there's only one God, Jesus is God, that's, that's all. But functionally, you're a polytheist. Functionally, you have many gods. Your heart is divided and pulled in many ways. Tim Keller again uh, puts it like this. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. An idol is anything that you see as more important than God, more significant than God, more powerful than God. And this can be any, when we can make anything into that. It can be kind of the typical things that we know aren't right, like overvaluing sex, overvaluing money and what it can do for us and power, but it can also happen to, to good things, even religious activity. We can make that into an idol where we're not actually trusting God by faith. We're saying, no, 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 I am doing something to contribute. We think, okay, God, the God of the Bible can help me with forgiveness, but when it comes to feeling approved, feeling valued, feeling significant, feeling having pleasure in my life, being satisfied, I don't, I, I'm going to have to go somewhere else for that. And our hearts are then drawn away and we end up loving many gods. So this is the hard truth that I think um, God is not surprised by because he tells them this, and he's telling us this, that you don't love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You don't, and I don't either. So what do we do about it? What do you do about it? This brings us to our last section. Of how to be like Jesus. So that the, the, the main thing about Jesus, he is enamored with his father. Driven to do every, he, he's reorganizing his life around his father, obeying him, serving him, loving him. And yet we find ourselves, you find yourself drawn away every day by the promises of pseudo-saviors, what can you do about it? 
this struggle to love God exclusively and to throw away your precious idols. He is not, he's not caught off guard by this. So first of all, you need to hear that God is not ashamed of you for that. He's not disappointed in you for that. He's aware of this, and he's done something about it. Actually, when you look at the whole arc of the Bible, all the stuff that he was calling Israel to do, if you actually look at it, they never did it. They were never able to keep these, these laws and commands. What, is that, what is that telling us? Because we know that Israel is an image for all people, an image for you. Like God is saying, look, look at yourself. You can't do what you want to do. The things you don't want to do, you do. You're a mess. I'm trying to tell you that. Not to shame you, not to press you down, to grind you down, but, but because it takes humility to walk into the kingdom. It takes acknowledging your need, your helplessness, your absolute spiritual poverty. So what's the way out? Deuteronomy 6, again, gives us a clue into the way out. If you look a little bit further into verse 20 through 21, it says this, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I love this. It's so honest. It's saying, this, this, is, uh, this is God saying to the, the generation that had been in slavery and that experienced being delivered from that. He's saying, you're going to have kids and they're going to grow up cushy. They're going to grow up in the promised land. They're not going to know anything about this slavery, making bricks out of mud and building stuff under harsh Pharaoh, they're not going to know anything about that. And they're going to look at these rules, these laws, and they're going to ask you, what is up with this? What is up with all the rules? What's going on with this? What's the response? We were slaves. We were slaves. We were slaves. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God brought us out with a mighty hand. Underneath obedience, right? So some of you think that this Christianity thing, that the, the Christian you've been handed down is just be a goody two-shoe, do the right thing, right? But underneath that is love, but what's underneath that? What causes that love? What causes that affection? Rescue. Having been rescued, having known you were a slave, you were trapped, you were done for, you were under masters who cared nothing for you. That's what these idols are, right? They take and they take and they take and they take and they give less and they give less and they give less and they give less. They don't care about you. 
right? In the end, money's not going to save you. Sex is not going to save you. Your religious achievement is not going to save you. It's not going to satisfy you. They're going to leave you high and dry. And this is God saying, before there were any rules for you to keep, that's what you have to see about the Ten Commandments. They come after the rescue. They come after there was anything for them to do to prove themselves to God. They were just chosen by God and in slavery. And God said, I'm going to get you out of this. And now, because I've gotten you out of this, because you now see the depths that I'm willing to go for you, let that do something inside of you. Let that affect you inside. Let that tell you something about me. We see this uh, most clearly with God the Son, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross. What, what is he doing there? He is loving you with all of his heart, soul, and strength. He's doing what you could never do. He is the true Israel. Israel means son. He's the true son. He's the one who was meant to keep that, all the commandments, and the two that they all hang on, loving God, loving neighbor. He's the one, not you. So it is by what? Reverse a little bit. By being with him, by being around him, by linking your life to him, reorganizing your life around him, that he begins to rub off on you and show you. Because who's Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. He and the, Jesus and the Father are one and have been for all of eternity. He is showing you who God really is. And where you see it most clearly is him on the cross, giving himself up, dying in your place for his friends, for those who aren't sick. No, right? For his enemies. Jesus said, I came for the sick. Well, they don't need help. The righteous, self-righteous, they're going to miss out on this. When you see this love with eyes of faith, it cracks open your heart. That's what God's wanting. He's trying to break through your life to get to the deepest part of you, the place that chooses the things that you choose and prioritizes the things that you prioritize. There's a, a great picture of this from a couple hundred years ago, a guy named John Wesley, who was, uh, was an Anglican priest, but began to realize he wasn't a Christian. He preached the gospel, he shared the gospel, preached sermons, but he began to realize he didn't really believe this. He didn't love God. He had no affection for Jesus, and it began to really trouble him began to really concern him. And he wrote in his journal about his conversion. One night in 1738, he wrote this. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. So he's reading, someone's reading 
um, some thoughts on the book of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He goes on to say that after that day, after that moment, he was never the same. What happened that day? I think Romans 5.5 5 tells us what happened, explains what happened. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, who takes the Word of God to make the love of God real to you. This is something that you cannot do on your own. So what do you do? What we just talked about. You, you say, God, I recognize I don't love you with all my heart, soul, and strength. I don't. And here are the gods that I at least know of, and I'm sure there are others deeper down there, that I find myself loving, that I find myself being preoccupied with, honoring, having affection for, chasing after. And it's only when you are not driven by fear, when you're not driven by rote obedience, but a warm affection breathed into you by the Holy Spirit that you can be like Christ, right? Because this is, the, this is what God is saying. Even in this pursuit to be like Jesus, it is Jesus himself in you helping you to do this. He's helping to tear back the layers of, of your life, layers of your heart that have been filled up with other gods, breaking through those to show you new and powerful ways that the, the Lord your God and the Lord your God alone satisfies and can deliver and can rescue. So how do, how do you become like Jesus? It's by being, it's by seeing the Father as he truly is. That's what Jesus was about. He knew the Father and living in accordance with that. Seeing the Father for who he is, and how do you see the Father? Through Christ, and living in accordance with that. Let's pray. Father, you are, um, we, just, we just confess, Father, that you are beyond what we could ever comprehend or imagine and because of that, we do struggle to love you as we ought. But we thank you that you have not pressed on us the weight that you put on your own son, that he was, that your anger was kindled against him, as Deuteronomy 6. That he was destroyed off of the face of the earth so that we would not have to be. God, would your spirit... And will we listen to your spirit, the very spirit of Christ, as he points us to the goodness of you, the Father, your power, your grace, your mercy. And God, would you loosen the grip of the idols that are 
so powerful, whatever those are in the lives of those that are here this, this morning, God, we beg you. We beg for your Holy Spirit to do fresh work in our lives. Help us to know uh, the rescue that we've experienced and help those who uh, maybe have not known that rescue from their slavery of sin. God, would you bring them out of that with a mighty hand? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.